56, was Punch, said the gallant gentleman, with much feeling, who first convinced me that the popular opinion of my asinine capabilities was erroneous. It was Punch who discovered that there was as much in my head as on it loud cheers, produced doubtlessly by the aptness of the simile, the gallant colonel being perfectly bald. I should, therefore, be the most ungrateful of members for Lincoln. Did I not entreat of this meeting to mark their high sense of Mr. Punch's exertions by a liberal subscription? Cheers. Sir Peter Lorry acknowledged himself equally in debt with their gallant chairman to the object of the present meeting. He Sir Peter had tried all schemes to obtain popularity he had made speeches without number or meaning he had done double duty at the mansion house, and had made Mr. Hobler laugh more heartily than any Lord Mayor or Alderman since the days of Whittington during whose mayoralty the venerable chief clerk first took office he Sir Pilori had, after much difficulty and four years' practice, received the Queen on horseback much cheering, but continued cheering but it was left for Punch to achieve his immortality immense cheering several squares of glass in the conservatory opposite broken by the explosion. He Sir Pilori had done all in his power to deserve the notice of that illustrious wooden individual. He had endeavored to be much more as loud cheers I do is than ever. Punch had rewarded him, and he therefore felt it his bounden duty to reward Punch. Here, here, Mr. Robot fully concurred in the preceding eulogies. What had not Punch done for him? Had not Punch extinguished the times by the honest way in which he had advocated his Roebuck's injured genealogy? Had Punch not proved that he Mr. Roebuck had a father, which the mendacious journal had asserted was impossible? Had not Punch traced the Roebuck family as far back as 1801? That was something. But he Mr. Roebuck believed that he had been injured by an error of the press, and that Punch had written the numerals 1081, be that as it might. He Mr. Roebuck was anxious to discharge the overwhelming debt of gratitude which he owed to Mr. Punch, and intended to subscribe very largely cheers. Mr. Peter B.O.R.D.H.W.I.C.K. had been in former years a Shakespearean actor. He had for many seasons, at the Royal Rugby Barn, had the honor of bearing the principal banners in all the imposing processions, got up at an immense expense in that unique establishment. Here, he was, therefore, better qualified than any gentleman present to form an opinion of the services which Punch had rendered to the British drama loud and continued cheers, during which Mr. Yates rushed onto the platform, and bowed several times to the assembled multitude, therefore, as a devoted admirer of that art which he Peter trusted he and Shakespeare had adorned cheers, he fondly hoped that the meeting would at once take tickets, when he announced that the performance was for the benefit of Mr. Punch, Lord and the RPDH next presented himself, but our reporter, having promised to take two with his grandmother, left before the noble lord opened his mouth. We hope next week to furnish the remainder of the speeches, and a very long list of subscriptions. The rate of the lockup, O.R. Sir Peter Lorion crime and the crops. We believe no longing was ever more firmly planted in the human heart, than that of discovering some shortcut to the high road of mental acquirement. The toilsome learner's progress through the barren outset of the alphabet, the slough of despond of seven syllables, endangered as they both are by the frequent appearance of the compulsive birch of the Mr. Worldly Wise Men who teach the young idea how to shoot, must ever be looked upon as a probation, the power of avoiding which is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Imbued with this feeling, the more speculative of past ages have frequently attempted to arrive, by external means, that the immediate possession of results otherwise requiring a long course of intense study and anxious inquiry. From these defunct Illuminati originated the suppositionary virtues of the magically endowed divining wand, 
the simple bending of a forked hazel twig, being the received sign of the deep buried well, sweeped admirably with their notions of immediate information, and precluded the unpleasant and toilsome necessity for delving on speculation for the discovery of their desired object, but, alas, divining rods, like dogs, have had their day, the want of faith in the operators, or the growth of a new and obstinate assortment of hazel twigs, threw discredit on the mummer and the mummers, still the passion existed, and in no case was it more observable than in that of the celebrated witch-finder, an actual presence at the demoniacal rites of the broom-riding sisterhood would have been attended with much danger and considerable difficulty, indeed, it has been asserted that the visitors, like those at Elmex, were expected to be balloted for, ticketed, and dressed in a manner sweeting the occasion. Any infringement of these rules must have been at the proper peril of the condemnatious infringer, and as it is more than probable some of the brooms carried double, there was a very decent chance of the intruders discovering himself across one of the heavy-tailed and strong-backed breed, taking a trip to some distant bourne, from whence that compulsory aerial traveler would doubtless never have returned. Still witches were evils, and proof of evil is what the law seeks to enable evil suppression. Now and again one of these shortcut gentry, by some railroad system of mental calculation, discovered certain external marks or moles that at a glance betrayed the secret, dark, and midnight hags, and the witch-finding process was instantaneously established. The outward and visible sign of their misdeeds authorities the further proceeding necessary for the clear proof of their delinquencies, thus the pinchings, beatings, starvings, trials, hangings, and burnings were made the goal of the shortest of all imaginable shortcuts, and old women who had established pin manufactories in the stomachs of thousands, instead of receiving patents for their inventions, divided the honor of illuminating the land with the blazing tar barrels provided for their peculiar use and benefit, whether it was that aerial gambles on unsaddled and rough-backed broomsticks grew tiresome, or the small profit attending the vocation became smaller, or that all the elderly ladies with moles, and without anything else, were burnt up. We can't pretend to say, but certain at island the art of witchcraft fell into disrepute. Corking, minikin, and all description of pins, were obliged to be made in the regular way, and cows even departed this world without the honor of the human immolations formerly considered the necessary sacrifice for the loss of their inestimable lives. Since the above e times animal magnetism and mesmerism have followed in the wake of what has been, and now, just as despair, already poised upon its outstretched sable wings, was hovering for a brief moment previous to making its final swoop upon the external doctrine. Peter our Peter Peter Lorry the Great, the glorious, the aldermanic Lorry makes despair, like the Indian juggler who swallowed himself, become the victim of its own insatiate maw. Our quill trembles as we proceed, it is unequal to the task. Oh, that we could write with the whole goose upon the wondrous merits of the wondrous Peter. We are better. That bumper has restored our nerve. Reader, fancy the gifted Peter seated in the dull dignity of civic magistracy. The court is thronged. The young delinquent blinks like an owl in sunshine neath the mighty flashing of his benchlet eye. His crime. Aye. What's his crime? It can't be much so pale. So thin. So woebegone. Look. Too. So tremulous of knee. And redland of hair. What has he done? Hero interprets, please your worship. This young man, or tailor, has been assaulting several females with a blue bag and a pair of breeches. Sir Peter, I don't wonder at it, that man would do anything. I see it in his face, or rather in the back of his head. That's where the expression lies. look at his hair. 
the whole court becomes a cyclops it has but one eye, and that is fixed upon the tailor's locks, I say, resumes our Peter, a man with that head of hair would do anything pray, sir, do you wish to be taken for a German sausage, or a German student, they're all the same, sir speak at once, the faltering fraction denies the student, and repudiates the sausage, sir Peter, still looking at the hair, from which external sign he evidently derived all his information, you were drunk, sir, I was, faltered the Samsonian Schneider, I know it, sir you are fined five shillings, sir but if you choose to submit to the deprivation of that iniquitous hair, which has brought you here, and which, I repeat, will make you do anything, I will remit the fine, aside, fine drawn as the accidental rent in an unfinished skirt, escape the hirsute stitcher, a melancholy reflection upon the infinite deal of nothing in his various pockets, and the slow revolving of the Brixton wheel in stern perspective, wrung from the quadded wretch's low ascent, Sir Peter sent a city officer with his warrant to secure the nearest barber, a few sharp clickings of the envious shears and all was over, crime fell from the shoulders of the quantum culprit, and the tonsorial innocent stood forth confessed, Sir Peter was entranced, that was his doing, he gazed with pride upon the new absolved from sin, he asked, are you not more comfortable, all vice had gone, save when the young man answered, yes, and lied, then, sir, go home, the barber, muttered, soft row, in as soft a voice, what of him, wants a shillin', there at island, exclaimed the Augustine Peter, there, from my own pocket, paid with pleasure to preserve that youth from the evil influence of too much hair, I'll pay for all the city if they like and banished suicide and I'll pretty soon see if I can't settle all the city crops. Prisoner, you are discharged. The young man lost his hair, the queen five shillings, and Sir Peter won, but then he gained his end, and docking must henceforth be looked upon as the treadmill's antidote, and young man's fine's best friend. We therefore say, should the iniquity of your long locks, gentle reader, take you to the station for, remember, Sir Peter says, long hair will do anything, if you can't find bail secure a barber, and command your liberation, we have been speculating of these externally illustrated grades of crime, we think the following nearly correct, the long and length indicates larceny petty and otherwise, the bushy and bountiful burglary, the full and flowing felony, the magnificent and mysterious murder, and, for aught we know, pigtails polygamy, for the future, a thinking man's motto will be, not to mind, his own eye, but everybody else's hair, p.s. We have just received the following horrifying communication which establishes Sir Peter's opinion, that a man with such hair would do anything, but unfortunately disproves the remedy, as those atrocities had been committed when he was without, indignant at the loss of his head's glory, the evil-minded tailor, immediately upon leaving the court, sent for counsel's opinion as to whether he couldn't proceed against Sir Peter, under the act for cutting and maiming, with intent to do him some grievous bodily harm. This, it appears he cannot do, inasmuch as these very learned gentlemen at the bar have decided, the head, from which the hair was cut, and which, if any, is consequently the injured part, is not included in the meaning of the word bodily, as Ansi, Ansi, foiled in this attempt, the monster, for the brutal gratification of his burning revenge, hit upon a scheme the most diabolical that human hair could conceive. He actually applied to the Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Animals, and they, upon inspecting a portion of the dissevered locks, immediately took up the case, and are about to indict Sir Peter, Roe, and the barber, 
under one of the clauses of that tremendous act, if they proceed for penalties in individual cases, they must be immense, as the killed and wounded are beyond calculation, not to mention all that the process has left homeless, foodless, and destitute. Barbaro's announcement, we beg to inform our readers that Mr. Tanner, of Temple Bar and Shire Lane, whose salon extends from the City of London to the liberties of Westminster, has this day been appointed haircutter extraordinary to Sir Peter Lorry, a new Milky Way. K.I.R.C.H.O.F.F., a Prussian chemist, is reported to have discovered a process by which milk may be preserved for an indefinite period. Fresh milk is evaporated by a very gentle heat till it is reduced to a dry powder, which is to be kept perfectly dry in a bottle. When required for use it need only be diluted with a sufficient quantity of water. Mr. James Jones, who keeps a red cow over his door claims the original idea of making milk from a white powder, which, he states, may be done without the tedious process of evaporation, by using an article entirely known to a London milk vendor's namely chalk. O.H. Gemini, at the close of the civic festival last week, Sir William Follett inquired of the recorder if he had seen his caster. Mumber, replied Law holding up the Attorney General's 57 penworth. But here is your brother Pollux, Pollux. Well, said Sir Peter Hobler the other morning, I should think you will be denied the entree to the palace after your decision of Saturday. Why so? Inquired the Knight of Leather. For fear you should cut off the heir to the throne. Screamed Hobler, and vanished. Punch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending November 27, 1841. The Physiology of the London Medical Student. 9 of the sequel to the whole examination, whilst Mr. Muth follows the beetle from the funking room to the council chamber, he scarcely knows whether he is walking upon his head or his heels, if anything, he believes that he is adopting the former mode of locomotion, nor does he recover a sense of his true position until he finds himself seated at one end of a square table, the other three sides whereof are occupied by the same number of gentlemen of grave and austere bearing with all the candles in the room apparently endeavoring to imitate that species of eccentric dance which he has only seen the gas lamps attempt occasionally as he has returned home from his harmonic society. The table before him is invitingly spread with pharmacopoeias, books of prescriptions, trays of drugs, and half-dead plants, and upon these subjects, for an hour and a half, he is compelled to answer questions. We will not follow his examination, nobody was ever able to see the least joke in it and therefore it is unfit for our columns. We can but state that after having been puzzled, bullied, caught, quibbled with, and abused, for the above space of time, his good genius prevails, and he is told he may retire. Oh, the pleasure with which he re-enters the funking room that nice, long, pleasant room, with its cheerful fireplace and good substantial bookcases, and valuable books, and excellent old-fashioned furniture, and the capital to which the worshipful company allows him never was meal so exquisitely relished. He has passed the hall. Won't he have a flare-up tonight? That's all. As soon as all the candidates have passed their certificates are given them, upon payment of various sovereigns, and they are let out. The first great rush takes place to the retail establishment over the way, where all their friends are assembled Mesros, Jones, Rap, Manhook, and C. A pot of hospital Maydock is consumed by each of the thirsty candidates, and off they go, jumping Jim Crow down Union Street, and swaggering along the pavement six abreast, 
as they sing several extempore variations of their own upon a glee which details divers peculiarities in the economy of certain small pigs, pleasantly enlivened by grunts and whistles, and the occasional asseveration of the singers that their paternal parent was a man of less than ordinary stature. This insensibly changes into, Willie brewed a peck of malt, and finally settles down into, Nix my dolly, appropriately danced and crossed, until a policeman, who has no music in his soul, stops their harmony, but threatens to take them into charge if they do not bring their promenade concert to a close. Arrived at their lodgings, the party throw off all restraint. The table is soon covered with beer, spirits, screws, hot water, and pipes, and the company take off their coats, and button their stocks, and proceed to conviviality. Mr. Muff, who is in the chair, sings the first song, which informs his friends that the glasses sparkle on the board and the wine is ruby bright, in allusion to the pewter pots and half and half. Having finished, Mr. Muff calls upon Mr. Jones, who sings a ballad, not altogether perhaps of the same class you would hear at an evening party in Belgrave Square, but still of infinite humor which is applauded upon the table to a degree that flirts all the beer out of the pots, with which Mr. Rapp draws portraits and humorous conceits upon the table with his finger. Mr. Manhook is then called upon, and sings the student's alphabet. O, A was an artery, filled with injection, and B was a brick, never caught at dissection. C were some chemicals lithium and borax, and D was a diaphragm, flooring the thorax. Chorus taken in shorthand with minute accuracy. Fool de lol. Told the roll lay. Told the roll. Told the Lay. It was an embryo in a glass case, and ephetheramen, that pierced the skull's base. G was a grinder, who sharpened the fools, and H means the half and half drunk at the schools. Told the roll And C. I was some iodine, made of seaweed. J was a jolly cock, not used to a reed. K was some creosote, much overrated, and L were the lies which about it were stated. Thulderolol, and C. M was a muscle cold, flabby, and red, and N was a nerve, like a bit of white thread. O was some opium, a fool chose to take, and P were the pins used to keep him awake. Thulderolol, and C. Q were the quacks, who cure stammer and squint. R was a raw from a burn, wrapped in lint. S was a scalpel, to eat bread and cheese, and T was a tourniquet, vessels to squeeze. Thulderolol, and C. U was the unsiform bone of the wrist. V was the vein which a blind lancet missed. W was wax. From a syringe that flowed. X the zaminers. Who may be glowed. Thulderolol. And C. Y stands for you all. With best wishes sincere. And Z for the zinnies who never touch beer. So we've got to the end. Not forgetting a letter. And those who don't like it may grind up a better. Thulderolol. And C. This song is vociferously cheered. Except by Mr. Rapp who during its execution has been engaged in making an elaborate piece of basket work out of wooden pipe lights, which having arranged to his satisfaction, he sends scudding at the chairman's head. The harmony proceeds, and with it the desire to assist in it, until they all sing different airs at once, and the lodger above, who has vainly endeavored to get to sleep for the last three hours, gives up the attempt as hopeless, when he hears Mr. Man who called upon for the sixth time to do the cat and dog. Saw the bit of wood, imitate MacReady, sing his own version of Lurly Eaty, and accompany it with his elbows on the table. The first symptom of approaching cerebral excitement from the action of liquid stimulants is perceived in Mr. Muff himself, who tries to cut some cold meat with the snuffers. Mr. Simpson also, a new man, 
who was looking very pale, rather overcome with the effects of his elementary screw in a first essay to perpetrate a pipe, petitions for the window to be let down, that the smoke, which you might divide with a knife, may escape more readily. This proposition is unanimously negative, until Mr. Jones, who is tilting his chair back, produces the desired effect by overbalancing himself in the middle of a comic medley, and causing a compound, comminuted, and irreducible fracture of three panes of glass by tumbling through them. Hereat, the harmony experiencing a temporary check, and all the half and half having disappeared, Mr. Muff finds there is no great probability of getting any more, as the servant who attends upon the seven different lodgers has long since retired to a rest in the turn-down bedstead of the back kitchen. An adjournment is therefore determined upon, and, collecting their hats and coats as they best may, the whole party tumble out into the streets at two o'clock in the morning. Whiz-zee-zee-zee-zee-t, shouts Mr. Manhook, as they emerge into the cool air, in accents which only Whelan could excel, there goes a cat. Upon the information of all of hats follow the scared animal, none of which go within ten yards of it, except Mr. Raps, who, taking a bold aim, flings his own gossamer down the area, over the railings, as the cat jumps between them onto the water butt, which is always her first leap in a hurried retreat, whereupon Mr. Rapp goes and rings the house bell, that the domestics may return his property, but not receiving an answer, and being assured of the absence of a policeman, he pulls the handle out as far as it will come, breaks it off, and puts it in his pocket, after this they run about the streets, indulging in the usual buoyant recreations that innocent and happy minds so situated delight to follow, and are eventually separated by their flight from the police, from the safe plan they had adopted of all running different ways when pursued, to bother the crushers, what this leads to we shall probably hear next week, when they are once more reunis in the dissecting room to recount their adventures, it is said that the Duke of Wellington declined the invitation to the Lord Mayor's civic dinner in the following laconic speech, Pray remember the 9th November, 1830. Ah, said Sir Peter Lorry, on hearing the Duke's reply, I remember it. They said that the people intended on that day to set fire to Guildhall, and meant to roast the mayor and board of aldermen, on the old system, I suppose, of every man cooking his own goose, observed Hobler dryly. The, of papers, introduction, I cannot recollect the precise day, but it was sometime in the month of November 1839 that I took one of my usual rambles without design or destination. I detest a premeditated route I always grow tired at the first mile, but with a free course, either in town or country, I can saunter about four hours, and feel no other fatigue but what a tumbler of toddy and a pipe can remove. It was this disposition that made me acquainted with the fraternity of the pugs. I would premise, gentle reader, that as in my peregrinations I turn down any green lane or dark alley that may excite my admiration or my curiosity hurry through glittering saloons or crowded streets pause at the cottage door or shop window, as it best suits my humor, so, in my intercourse with you, I shall digress, speculate, compress, and dilate, as my fancy or my convenience wills it, this is a blunt acknowledgement of my intentions, but as travelers are never sociable till they have cast aside the formalities of compliment, I wish to start with you at the first stage as an old acquaintance. The course is not usual, and, therefore, I adopt it, and it was by thus stepping out of a common street into a common hostel that I became possessed of the material of those papers, which I trust will hereafter tend to cheat many into a momentary forgetfulness of some care. I had no other ambition, 
There are philosophers enough to mystify or enlighten the world without my nose of Turk and Tartar's lips being thrust into the cauldron, whose charms of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. I had buttoned myself snugly in my Petersham they the tailor who invented that garment, sleep well, whenever he wears the churchyard livery, grass green turned up with brown, the snow the beautiful snow fell pure and noiselessly on the dirty pavement, ragged, blue-faced urchins were scrambling the pearly particles together, and, with all the joyous recklessness of healthier childhood, carrying on a war less fatal but more glorious than many that had made countless widows and orphans, and, perhaps, one hero, Little round doll-like things, in lace and ribbons, were thumping second-door windows with their tiny hands, and crowing with ecstasy at the sight of the flaky shower. Baked tater, cans and roasted apple, sauced and lids were sputtering and frizzing in impotent rage as they waged honey war with the congealed element. Hackney charioteers sat on their boxes warped and whitened, whilst those strange amalgams of past and never-to-come fashions the clerks of London hurried about with the horrid consciousness of exposing their costliest garments to the pelting of the pitiless storm. Evening stole on. A London twilight has nothing of the pale grey comfort that is diffused by that gradual change from day to night which I had experienced when seated by the hearth or the open window of a rural home. There it seems like the very happiness of nature a pause between the burning passions of meridian day and the dark, sorrowing loneliness of night, but in London on it comes, or rather down it comes, like the mystic medium in a pantomime it is a thing that you will not gaze on for long, and you rush instinctively from daylight to candlelight. I stopped in front of an old-fashioned public house, and soon being a connoisseur in these matters satisfied myself that if comfort were the desideratum, the heart that was humble might hope for it here. I shook the snow from my Petersham, and seeing the word parlor painted in white letters on a black door, bent my steps towards it. I was on the point of opening the door, when a slim young man, with a remarkable small quantity of hair, stopped my onward course by gurgling rather than ejaculating for the sentence seemed a continuous word, can't go in there sir. Why not? said I, of sir. Us. Yes sir. Tuesdaysy night us meets on Tuesdaysy and then addressing a young girl in the bar, delivered in order for, one rum one brandy one gin no whiskey all out, which I afterwards found to signify one glass of each of the liqueurs, I was about to remonstrate against the exclusiveness of the, us, when recollecting the proverbial obduracy of waiters, I contented myself with buttoning my coat, my annoyance was not diminished by hearing the hearty burst of merriment called forth by some jocular member of the stare incognito but rendered still more distressing by the appearance of the landlord, who emerged from the room, his eyes streaming with those tears that nature sheds over an expiring laugh. You had a merry party concealed there, Master Host, said I, yes sir, very, replied he, and tittered again, as though he were galvanizing his defunct merriment, quite exclusive, quite, sir, you and unless you are introduced oh dear, and having mixed a small tumbler of toddy, he disappeared into that inner region of smoke from which I was separated by the black door endorsed, parlor. I had determined to seek elsewhere for a more social party, when the thumping of tables and gimlet glasses induced me to abide the issue. After a momentary pause, a firm and not in musical voice was heard, pealing forth the words of a song which I had written when a boy, and had procured insertion for in a country newspaper. At the conclusion the thumping was repeated and the waiter having given another of his stenographical orders, I could not resist desiring him to inform the vocal gentleman that I craved a few words with him. Yes sir don't think it'll come cross the S in a corner. 
perhaps you will try the experiment, said I, certainly sir to gins please ma'am, and having been supplied with the required beverage, he also made his exit in FOMO, in a few minutes a man of about fifty made his appearance, his face indicated the absence of vulgarity, though a few purply tints delicately hinted that he had assisted at many an orgy of the rosy offspring of Jupiter and Samela. His dark vestments and white cravat induced me to set him down as a professional gentleman, nor was I far wrong in my conjecture, as I shall have, I trust, frequent occasion to speak of him. I will for the sake of convenience, designate him Mr. Bonus. I briefly stated my reason for disturbing him that as he had honored my muse by forming so intimate an acquaintance with her, I was anxious to trespass on his politeness to introduce me into that room which had now become a sort of bluebeard blue chamber, to my thirsty curiosity. Having handed him my card, he readily complied, and in another minute I was an inhabitant of an Elysium of socialite and tobacco smoke. Thaw! cries Aunt Charlotte Amelia, whilst pretty little cousin Emline turns up her round hazel eyes and ejaculates. Tobacco smoke! Horrid! Ladies! You treat with scorn that which God hath given as a blessing. It has never been your lot to thread the streets of mighty London, when the first springs of her untiring commerce are set in motion. Long, dear aunt, before thy venerable nose peeps from beneath the quilted coverlet to send an atmosphere made odorous by cosmetics long, dear and line, ere those bright orbs that one day will fire the hearts of thousands are enclosed, the artisan has blessed his sleeping children, and closed the door upon his household gods. The murky fog, the drizzling shower, welcome him back to toil. Labor runs before him, and with ready hand unlocks the doors of dreary cellars or towering and chilly edifices. Mind hath not yet promulgated or received the noble doctrine that toil is dignity, and you, yes, even you, dear, gentle hearts, would feel the artisan a slave. If some clever limmer showed you the twalling wretch foot door Japan, would you then rob him of one means of happiness? No, not even of his pipe. Ladies, you tread on carpets or on marble floors I will tell you where my foot has been. I have walked where the air was circumscribed where man was manacled by space. For no other crimes but those of poverty and misfortune. I've seen the broken merchant seated round a hearth that had not one endearment they looked about for faces that, 